Last week, we concluded chapter one, and we answered the question, what is a disciple by looking at uh, the various marks uh, that we saw come out of Jesus dealing with a few men. Disciples follow, disciples remain, disciples evangelize, disciples have a new name, disciples treasure scripture, disciples are authentic, disciples exalt Christ, disciples always develop, and disciples are hopeful. We've now moved from the end of chapter one and we're going into chapter two. And this is where we are truly thrust into the life and the work of Jesus Christ. We see him walking this earth. We see him involved in the things of this earth. And we might even point out the great truth that as a man, Jesus Christ lived and worked in this world. This uh, particular passage should be of great interest to us. So let's read from verse 1 to verse number 2, sorry, verse number 11, verse 1 to verse 11 of John chapter 2. And God's Word says, on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Amen. One of the things that I like to do to relax, perhaps when I've got the house to myself, is to put the television on and uh, to flick through the documentary channels. I like watching documentaries. Uh, and there are a few channels that I quite like because they've got the best documentaries, in my opinion. What I hate is when I'm looking for something to watch and I see come up uh, programs such as Ghost Hunter or things about the paranormal because I feel they're a wee bit ludicrous. People scared of noises in a house think that it might be a ghost. And I prefer the documentaries that are real, that deal with what's happened and what is tangible. But let me ask you something that might surprise you. Do you believe in the supernatural? Do you believe that there is the possibility of things happening that cannot be explained by the laws of nature? I hope your answer would be yes. Blaise Pascal, who was a noted mathematician, said, it is impossible on reasonable grounds 
to disbelieve miracles. Here's a man of logic, a man of reason, a man who deals with what can be proven, saying miracles exist, they happen. And I would go even further this morning by saying that if you do not believe in the miraculous, then you do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. This gospel account we are reading and working our way through tells us the story of Jesus' life here in this world. And the purpose of Jesus' life, each step that he took, each conversation that he had, each thing that he did, was all there to prove that he is the Son of God. Our world tries to relegate him at best to being a mere man. Many, if not most people, would doubt that Jesus Christ is anything more or anything greater than just an ordinary man, and they do their best to try and establish that. But here Jesus does the miraculous. He does what no other person can do, and his miracles are a powerful proof that he's not a mere man, that he is God, that he is divine, and that Jesus can do what no other man can do. Now, John's gospel, it's not wall to wall with miracles. It's not a miracle in each chapter even. In fact, I believe it to be seven or eight miracles that are recorded by John. John doesn't call them miracles, as we read in verse 11 here. He calls them signs because John gets it. He gets the reason why miracles are done. They serve a purpose. They are not the end in themselves. And each miracle points to the truth that Jesus is God. A miracle is an event or a happening that cannot be explained by natural laws. Jesus brought the dead back to life. Medical science can't do that. Jesus turns the water into wine. That cannot be done. And so we have read, let's now just consider in detail this Christ's first miracle. Look at verses 1 and 2, and we see in verses 1 and 2 that there is the party. The party. This is an event that's only recorded in John's gospel. It's unique to the uh, disciple John. It's a moment in time that is worthy of note because here Jesus steps into full public ministry. He's not just a man. He's not even a man who has been baptized with the Holy Spirit descending on him. He's not just a man who's called disciples. He is now irrefutably the Son of God at work in this world. And Jesus is present at this wedding banquet. It begins in verse 1 saying, on the third day. This refers back to chapter 1 when Jesus met Philip and Nathaniel. In the days of Jesus, uh, the, the young women were married on the fourth day of the week. They were married on the Wednesday. And widows who were remarrying, they married on the fifth day. <coughs> but here, we have a wedding that is taking place and it is related back to Jesus calling his disciples in chapter 1. And we know that it is probably to do with Philip and Nathaniel because of the town in which this takes place. It's in Cana. Nathaniel and Philip come from Cana, a town about eight miles northeast of Nazareth. And this would have been the hometown of the bridegroom. In the days of Jesus, a wedding was a notable event. They really went to town celebrating a wedding. We have the day, we have the ceremony, and then we have the meal, and then we have the party. Uh, and some people prefer one part over the other. But in Jesus' day, the wedding ceremony lasted a whole week. 
It was the final part of the betrothal period. Now, when a man and woman became engaged, that was known as being betrothed to one another. And it was such a serious matter to be betrothed to somebody that you could not break it off unless you went through divorce proceedings. That is how solid the betrothal was. And this was the culmination of being betrothed, a week of celebration, a week of pronouncing man and woman being husband and wife. And it was only after the wedding feast that the man and woman would live together as husband and wife. And this wedding feast was a thing of, of great status. The bridegroom paid for it, not, not the father of the bride, but the bridegroom himself paid for it. And it would have been a lavish occasion to try and show off and to show that you had money or that you really cared for, for your wife. And it was a wonderful party. But at this party, we find that Jesus' mother is at it. Mary is here. It doesn't tell us she's invited Jesus and his disciples are invited, but Mary is just simply there. Was she a close friend or a relation? Possibly. Was she serving part of the catering corps that was there? Possibly. But her presence at this wedding is different from the other guests. She knows everything that is going on. And she is the one that can tell Jesus what's taking place. And Jesus comes to the wedding. He accepts the invitation. He lends his support to the celebrations. And as a side issue, what we see here is that Jesus Christ is endorsing marriage. He is noting the importance of marriage. Not marriage as this world defines it now, but he is endorsing the God-defined marriage of one man and one woman. And Jesus is there. There is much that we can learn from this miracle. That Jesus comes and meets people where they're at. I don't know where you're at this morning, but Jesus knows where you are. Jesus doesn't wait for you to clean up your act so that you might come to him. Jesus doesn't wait for you to deserve to be saved by him. He comes and he meets you where you are at. This was a special occasion, but it was a usual occasion. People got married in these days and there were many celebrations. It was special, but it was not unique. There's a sense in which a wedding was a, a normal part of life. And I want to tell you today that Jesus Christ meets you where you're at in your life. You're not so ordinary that he's not interested in you. But equally, you're not so special that you don't need his help. Are you ready to meet him? Are you ready to live with him? You know, there will be two types of people here today. There have been two types of people at this wedding those who came as part of the groom's family and friends and those who came as part of the brides. But here there are two types of people. The first type of person that will be here this morning is the one who doesn't know Jesus Christ at all. The one who has never trusted in him. The one who has never accepted him. The one who has never responded to his call as Lord and Savior. Is that you this morning? Have you never come to Christ? Or are you part of this second group that does know Christ? that does worship him, that does see him as important in their life, so important as to be more worthwhile than even breathing. And you recognize the greatness, the enormity of salvation that comes from Christ. And you will be one of those two type of people this morning. There was the party. But while the party is in full swing, we see that a difficulty comes to light, verses three and four, and we're introduced to the, the problem the wine runs out. Now, this is a matter of great 
trouble in this occasion. Wine was really the bedrock of the festivities. Wine was the symbol of just how much the bridegroom liked his guests. And for wine to run out was a real stigma. You know, they could have got to this couple's 50th wedding anniversary and there would have been somebody at the 50th wedding anniversary celebration who said, aye, but the wine ran out at the first wedding. People do not forget something like the wine running out. And Jesus is made aware of this problem. Now, people in Jesus' day, they knew the prohibition that the Bible or Scripture placed upon getting drunk. And so they would have diluted the wine uh, to perhaps one-tenth of its strength. There would have been loads of wine, but such as the size of, of, the, of the number of guests here, or perhaps such as their thirst, that the wine has run out about halfway through the week's celebrations. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, comes to him and says, they've got no wine left. Some people have said that Mary didn't ask Jesus to do anything here, that she was just simply stating a fact. But Mary is the one individual who has lived in this world who is 100% certain without needing faith that Jesus is the Son of God. She alone, she was coming to Jesus for help. A mother knows her son. But Jesus responds to Mary in the most unusual fashion. He doesn't say mother or mum or even mummy. He says, woman. That's not really a, a term of endearment from a son to his mother. If I ever said that to my mother, let me tell you, blood would have run thick and fast. But Jesus is no ordinary man. And he says, what has this got to do with this? Or perhaps we could translate it. What do we have in common? Jesus here is stating that there is a change in relationship between him and Mary. Jesus is not to be seen by Mary as her son any longer, but as her Lord. And Christ says, my hour has not yet come. I'm not going to die yet. I'm not going to be resurrected yet. I will work to the divine timetable. But the problem is put before Jesus. And he is aware of what is taking place. I don't know what your life is like this morning. I don't know what problems you face. I don't know what difficulties you've got in the background. I could list several headings that might cover some of the difficulties that you've got as you go from day to day, but it still seems as if the world throws up new difficulties for us to deal with each and every day. But let me tell you, whatever the problem is, Christ is the answer. Now, I'm not saying that if you're in financial difficulty, Christ will come along and make you a millionaire. He won't do that. I'm not saying that if your great problem is that you are struggling with your health, that Christ will come and automatically heal you and restore you back to the, the health of a 21-year-old or whatever that would be. That's not what Christ deals with in terms of the problems. But the problem that you have that is bigger than anything else is this, that you are lost from God that you are separated from God, that your relationship with God has been fractured and that you are facing a lost eternity. It's not that you might not be able to pay your bills this month. It might not be that you have problems in relationships, but this is bigger, this is more serious because this is speaking about all the eternity, not just what time holds. And Christ knows your great problem. 
Let Christ deal with it. Come to him. Embrace him. Submit to him. Let Christ's relationship be clear with you. Just as Mary was being told here that he is no longer to be viewed as a son, but as Lord and God. Let your relationship with Christ be clear. He, he's not your best mate. He's not somebody that you just turn to when you feel like it. He is God. He is the Son of God. He is the Lord of all creation. He's the one who is above all others. He's the Alpha and Omega. He knows no beginning. He has no end. And this is the one that you can come to with your problem. But see how this account of the first miracle continues. Verses five to seven, we've been introduced to the party. We now know about the problem. But then verses five to seven, we see the process. Mary still has faith. Mary still has hope. Mary knows that Jesus can resolve this. And her instruction is simple. Do what Jesus tells you. And Jesus does act now to resolve this embarrassing situation. Mary here shakes off the gentle rebuke and she persists in her faith. She still knows that Jesus can and will solve this matter. And she gives the best bit of advice that any person could give you today. We cannot put it any better than Mary put it. She says, whatever he says, whatever Jesus says, do it. Don't prevaricate. Don't procrastinate. Don't doubt. Don't second guess. But whatever Jesus says, do it. And what Jesus does is he directs the servant's attention to these huge water pots made out of stone. They were clean. They didn't pick up the dirt. They weren't harboring bacteria. They were empty. And Jesus simply says, fill them up. Now, just to put it into context, these water pots, these six stone water pots would have contained, and I'll put it in Scottish language, they would have contained about 400 big bottles of iron brew. That is how much was in here. And Jesus tells these servants, go and fill them. That wasn't something that they were going to do very quickly. They didn't have pressurized taps. They had to go and draw the water up from a well and put it in. And so as you're talking about this amount, they had to go and put their back to it. They had to put the effort in. And what Jesus says should be done is done. They are filled. They're not filled just near the top. They're filled completely to the top. There's no more room for anything to go in. And as Jesus works, there are two stages to the process here. The first is obedience. And then the second is observance. The servants do what they're told and then they sit back and they watch what Jesus is going to do. I wonder if your life is filled today. Of course it is. It's filled with many things. It's filled with a mixture of things. Life is filled with family. It's filled with friends. It's filled with chores. It's filled with work. It's filled, filled with relationship, with stresses, with hopes, with disappointments, with successes. Life is filled and it is filled to the brim. And we often think there is no more room for anything else in my life. But let me tell you that Jesus wants to fill you but he wants to fill you with his goodness. 
He's not saying throw all these things away and become a hermit or a monk. But he's saying, let me fill you. And all these other things that are present will take on a new meaning if you put me first. You may ask, well, how is it I can be filled with Jesus? Well, let's just take the words of Mary, do what he says. And what does Jesus say? Say he says in Matthew 4, 19, follow me. <clears throat> no advertising, no slogans, no motivational speech, just a simple command that can't be misinterpreted. Follow me. But in following Jesus, we have to come with a contrite heart. Luke 5, verse 32, Jesus says, I've not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Let me tell you, if you think everything is fine, if you think everything is perfect, and there are no flaws in life, there are no flaws before God, there are no things that need correcting, if you think that that is the case, then you don't need Jesus Christ. But there is nobody here that thinks that when you search your heart. We all know that there are issues. We all know that there is a problem before God. But we have to come repenting of sin, not just changing our mind, not just changing our opinion, but making a decision to turn from sin to Jesus Christ. That's the process. But after Christ has done the miraculous here, there is an aftermath, there is a fallout. And what happens is happiness, enjoyment. Please note verses 8 through to 10. The party, the problem, the process leads to the pleasure. The jars are filled and the miracle is worked. And what remains in these jars, the finished wine, it's evidence that God has been at work in this place. The cup is put in, it's drawn out and it's tasted and this wine is seen and tasted to be the best that there ever could be. There is delight, there is surprise, there is enjoyment. And Jesus' miracle here brings relief to the bridegroom. It's only after obeying Christ that the wine can be drawn out and tasted. Now, the miracle isn't dependent upon anybody except Jesus Christ. It's not dependent upon the servants. If Jesus had wanted to, he could have filled the water pots with water without even asking the servants to do it. But the enjoyment comes because it is new wine, experienced after obedience. There is relief that there is wine to be served. And there is happiness at the taste of wine itself. Now this head waiter, he must have been reasonably high up to call the bridegroom. You can't just go to the bridegroom and say, hey you, would you come over here? He might have been a, a master of ceremonies. He might have been a family friend. But he knows wine when he tastes it. He could pass judgment on it. He knew good from bad. And he makes the comparison what has been given before to what has been given now. And they're surprised at the quality of wine. It was a custom in these days to serve the best first. And as that ran out then to serve the next best and so on. Because people as they drunk more and more wine, well they became less and less discerning about what was good. The word in, in verse 10 here, drunk freely, means to be intoxicated. Under the influence of alcohol. People that are under that sort of influence don't care what the wine tastes like just as long as there is wine. But Jesus did not produce cheap wine. 
This was not a put-by just to spare the blushes. This was the best that Jesus could give. It wasn't sour, it wasn't substandard, but it was the best. It was the sweetest, it was the most palatable. This is the best wine that has ever been drunk in the face of this world. And Jesus did it. He brought the pleasure. And I want to tell you this morning that there is pleasure in coming to Jesus Christ. There is great enjoyment in being saved by him. Encountering Christ does not leave a bitter taste. Encountering and trusting in Jesus Christ doesn't leave you wishing that you'd tried something different. The psalmist put it this way, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste Christ. Experience him. Enjoy him. You know, the more that you let this world dominate your pleasure, you will find it takes more and more and more to fill up the same thing in your heart. That's the law of diminishing returns. The more you have of something, the more you need of it. But with Christ, the more you have of him, the sweeter he tastes. The hymn writer puts it this way, and this is going back well over a hundred years. To Jesus every day we find our hearts are closer drawn. He's fairer than the sons of men and fresher than the morn. He's all that we can say of him in fairest words and more. And every day he's sweeter than he was the day before. The half cannot be fancied this side of the golden shore. Or there he'll be still sweeter than he ever was before. You know, this isn't about giving Jesus a chance. Take him fully. Take him for what he has done. He is the one who has dealt with sin, and he didn't deal with sin by giving it a stern telling off. He died on the cross. He shed his blood so that you might be forgiven, that you might be eternally saved. Christ will change your life, but it won't be the changing of water into wine. It's the changing of a sinner into a child of God, and Christ does it with great alacrity and joy. We have surveyed this first miracle of Jesus Christ, but you might be asking, well, what's the point of it? And that's what verse 11 says to us. It gives us the point. This miracle wasn't performed just for the sake of it. It wasn't that Jesus was bored and had nothing better to do except perform a miracle. No miracle is ever done for that. You know, Jesus didn't even perform the miracle of, of causing the lame to walk just so that they could walk. No, Jesus didn't do miracles for that. He didn't calm the storm just so that people would say, wow, isn't it amazing that a word can still the wind and the waves? Miracles serve a purpose, but it is so that the glory of God would be seen and would be known. And the point of this miracle is that Jesus has begun his public ministry. Jesus' miracles were not just out of care, concern, and compassion, but so that people would know who he is. This miracle is not of the world. It is a power that is not known by this world. But here is the warning to you this morning. Not everybody who saw this miracle or knew this miracle followed Jesus Christ. We don't read of these servants downing tools and heading off into the distance and leaving their master behind and following Jesus. They didn't do it. 
Miracles do not automatically produce disciples. Jesus would say to Capernaum in Matthew 11, verse 23, and you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. In other words, Capernaum rejected the miracles of Jesus, miracles that would have saved that city of Sodom that was so immoral and so lost. People are still blinded by Satan. People are still blinded by the things of this world. When you see a miracle, there is no excuse. But that doesn't stop people rejecting Christ. You know, the full glory of Jesus Christ will only be seen on the day that he comes back to this world, when the clouds part and he descends. But miracles do, do peel back something of the glory of God. Are there still, still miracles today? Yes. But they are miracles worked not by men and women, but by God. Things that we cannot explain that just go beyond nature. The car that crashes into a tree that should kill the occupants, but yet they walk away without a scratch. There is a miracle. The family's struggling with money, and then all of a sudden they, they find that they can meet their bills at the end of the month, but they don't know how. There is a miracle. The person who has a terminal condition all of a sudden cured. The doctors can't explain it. There is a miracle. But let me tell you of the greatest miracle that can ever happen in your life. And it's not just a miracle for other people, but it's a miracle for you. It's the miracle that says the one who is a sinner, the one who is far from God can be saved. The miracle of your hardened heart being heated up and softened up and trusting in Jesus Christ. Well, don't discount miracles. They're the handiwork of Jesus Christ. But let me tell you, don't seek such things. Only look to follow Jesus Christ. The danger is if we prefer the miraculous rather to the miracle worker. The danger is if we seek an experience rather than the one who gives us the solid reality of salvation. So don't make the miraculous your pursuit. Make Christ both the means and the end of all your goals. And make the glory of the Son of God your aim and object. You know, ultimately, the miraculous does nothing to us except give us a reason to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We don't deny the miraculous. We don't try and explain them as just being symbolic in the Bible or, or a, a thing of myths. These miracles happened because the miracle worker was present. And to deny them is to deny that Christ is above all of nature. Jesus Christ went to this wedding. He, he was at the party. Jesus Christ was presented with the difficulty. He knew the problem. But Christ was in control. The process that he put in place brought about relief. Christ brought the greatest pleasure. But ultimately, Christ makes his greatest point. You must believe in me. You know, if you need the miraculous, if you need the supernatural to keep you interested then you're not trusting in Jesus Christ himself. That is seeking experiences. That is having no interest in the substance of salvation. If you've not yet trusted in Jesus Christ, then don't believe a miracle would convince you that he saves. Trust Christ alone to be saved. It's not Christ plus miracles. It is Christ and Christ and Christ alone. Note these words of the respected author, Tom Wells. He said, men can see the greatest miracles and miss the glory of God. 
What generation was ever favoured with miracles as Jesus' generation was? Yet that generation crucified the Son of God. Don't see the miracle this morning, but miss the person. Don't marvel at the inexplicable and neglect the needful. Do not praise the supernatural, yet not worship the divine. This is the first miracle of Jesus Christ, but it was no means his last. It's my prayer this morning that he may work a miracle in your life. That he would cause you to see his glory and that he would bring you to the foot of the cross to be saved. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we may look at the Lord Jesus Christ and see him in his perfection, but we thank you that there are times that we just simply see him in his power power to do those things that we cannot do, power to do things that we cannot explain, but yet Christ does them all. And we pray this morning that he would work the miraculous here again, bringing the lost to be found, bringing the sinner to be saved. And we thank you that Christ has the power to save each and every sinner who comes to him. And so we do ask that there would be salvation in this place here today. May Christ be lifted up. May we know him. May we love him. May we worship him. We do pray this in his precious, most holy name, the name of Jesus, for he saves his people from their sins. Amen.